You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. We've been dying to do the giant Pacific octopus for weeks now. Yeah. And (laughs) it is such a cool species, the physiology, the Mm -hmm. behavior, the intelligence. What can they teach us? And they were looking at octopus arm regeneration. Not just fix and heal the wound site, but to signal and regenerate an entire new arm. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Hello, COVID buddy. (laughs) (laughs) I know a whole world apart. And Chris rings me and he says, I have COVID. I can't record. I'm like, oh, dude, I'm so sorry. that. that, Yeah, rest up. Eat Eat some soup. Uh, and then three days later, I ring at Chris. How did you give it to me <laughs> across the world? Uh, uh, yes. And then and then I had COVID and then we were COVID, uh, COVID buddies across yeah. uh, across the world. So we took a little time off recording and you might be able to still hear in our voices a little mm-hmm. bit. So anyways, but uh, but we wanted to come back because we are feeling a lot better mm-hmm. and we've been dying to do the giant Pacific octopus for weeks now. Yeah. And... <laughs> It is such a cool species, the physiology, the mm-hmm. behavior, the intelligence, the beauty, mm-hmm. the camouflage. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, octopuses, uh, you and I are mammal biologists by trait. So mm. any of our invertebrate biologists, fans listening to this, Chris and I pre-apologize for if we don't say everything perfect. Because it is it is for me uh, a little bit of a challenge to always talk about invertebrates because they are s- so different than mammals. and. The octopus is next level, alien, different, beautiful, (laughs) amazing, out of this world, extraterrestrial, whatever you want to call it. Like it is, this is, yes. So I'm excited to be here tonight. Yeah, no, and I I did write down octopus are just on another level. And and I realized this is on the heels of the giant or slash colossal squid that we just did. So some of the physiology is very similar, but... I felt like we had to go back to the octopus. I, I do have an upcoming interview with Dr. David Scheel. Uh, he's an octopus expert and scientist. After the interview, I was like, Angie, we have to cover it with the interview because the, the squid was amazing and their physiology and living in the deep, deep depths of the oceans, whereas octopus are just, I mean, you have octination 
which is shout out to them. And, and they have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of fans around the world because Octopus just captures our imagination. So definitely going to be a fun one today talking about this species. And with that being said, you know, just a shout out to Warren Car- Carlisle, who is the founder of Octonation. And I did interview him back in episode 99 when uh, you know, we were still yeah, in our younger days. Yeah, we were still in our groove, though, by our first 100 episodes. So it was wonderful talking to him about how he started this fan club for Octopus. And then it has just grown. And now it's education. And I actually asked Dr. Dr. Shield if, if he knows about Octonation. He's like, oh, of course I do. Like he he's worked with them and stuff. So shout out to them and, and all their fans. Oh, yeah, that interview was awesome. And really anything Octopus related. Your interview coming up in a couple of weeks, this podcast today, just there's I don't know if there can be too much information about octopus. And I know, Chris, you're also going to talk today, too, about the ocean going into a little bit more depth as far as global climate change and how that's affecting the oceans and potentially octopus as well. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of topics to cover. And before we dive into the octopus, I just want to let our listeners know that I have a really exciting interview uh, that will be dropped in the next week or so with Bertie Gregory, who is a National Geographic Explorer, and he, is, him and his team are releasing a documentary called Animals Up Close with Bertie Gregory on Disney Plus on September 13th. It's incredible. I got to preview it. The interview is fantastic. All the highlights of Animals Up Close and what you'll see in the documentary series is, is on there, but it is Going the interviews amazing. He's like definitely one of my new favorite National Geographic explorers, uh, photographers, filmmakers. Just incredible, because the footage that they get is just jaw dropping, and that's why it's called Animals Up Close because of some of the footage. So look for that interview, and then of course on September thirteenth, make sure and turn Disney Plus on to Animals Up Close. It's nuts. You you're like you have to watch this episode. The the one with. I, I can't get I can't give it away, but the one with the orcas, I you said you must watch this one. It, behaviors I never seen. I know we we did like two episodes on orcas, and maybe we'll have to revisit them again one day. But that sequence is insane. So look for that interview. He is a rock star. Great interview, Angie. Great interview. Now, giant Pacific octopus. So it is the largest octopus in the world. So just to give you an idea, now they're not quite as big as colossal or giant squid, but for an octopus, they're massive. Their body alone can be just two feet or 60 centimeters. Then the arm span can be at least seven feet or two meters, can sometimes exceed 13, 14 feet or four meters. So these are big, big cephalopods now weigh about 50 pounds but there's been some captured close to 200 pounds so these things are big 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 yeah i read the 200 pound was close to 20 feet across when it was all yeah 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 because yeah. if each arm's like 10 you know 13 mm-hmm. feet yeah yeah mm-hmm. i mean they're massive these are big and i've seen one in the aquarium in southern california up close and i'll try to put some of that on social media this week uh, just beautiful. They're gorgeous. Octopus are just amazing. 
Oh, I mean, all octopus are amazing, but you have, I mean, you have to recognize that the giant Pacific octopus just stands out because of their size, as Chris mentioned, but also because they're so beautiful. So the giants are usually reddish in color, but they're able to change color and textures with their skin uh, if they're threatened or if they need to camouflage or if they're excited or if they're angry. And we'll talk a lot about that in behavior, but in general, they're a reddish type color. And the head of the giant Pacific octopus is also called the mantle, if you will. And it looks like a sack. And it's an important part, though, because the head, it looks like a head. And that's where cephalopod, the name comes from, cephala meaning head and pod meaning foot. So mm -hmm. it looks like a foot head, I guess. Yeah, it but does. It, <laughs> but it's really important because the head, of course, are where the eyes are. And so the giant Pacific octopus, they have two eyes on each side of the head or the mantle, uh, which provides really good vision for them. Scientists think that it might not be colored vision, which I'm, I'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast. But the mantle also contains all of the organs, the brain, the reproductive organs, the digestive organs, and of course, the eyes, as I mentioned. So that's the main component. But then, of course, what makes octopuses so famous are their arms. And the giant Pacific octopus has four pairs of arms for a total of eight that extend from the mantle. And each arm is covered with up to 280 suckers. And the suckers have their own unique physiology. And the suckers are just fascinating. And so I have a whole slide about their physiology, which we'll get to here shortly, because they contain tons of chemical receptors and nerves and just it's just incredible. And then lastly, you can't see it when you look at the giant Pacific octopus, but they have a beak, which is tucked up under the arms. And it looks like what it sounds like, basically a, a hard shell beak. And that's what they do a lot of their biting and grabbing of prey. And that's tucked up under their arms, like under like the top of the umbrella part, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's not on the, the outside of the mantle, it's up underneath their arms. And they are venomous, which we're going to talk about. So just like the, the, the last octopus we covered, the, the blue ring, I think it was episode 98. It, it's, that's one of the most venomous animals in the oceans where Pacific octopus, not quite as much, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll talk about that. Now, like the name suggests, this is a Pacific ocean octopus and it's only in the Northern Pacific ocean. So nowhere near me, but not even near you, Angie, it's, what the you're in you're in Florida. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> See you I'm like so, picturing a globe on math. I'm like Okay, sorry, COVID like, brain. All right, all right, all right. So but you're going from okay, so if we start in Asia, way north of me, across the equator, around in Japan, Japan Korea, oh, yeah. Korea and that's parts of Siberia. Then you go across the Bering Sea and around Alaska, all the way down to the Gulf of California and Mexico. So some warm water there, even though the Pacific Ocean where I grew up wasn't exactly that warm. So because because the, the they do like the, the the colder water. So where you are in Florida, you know, we're going to talk about this in a minute where it was 101 degrees uh, off the Florida Keys just a few uh, weeks ago. Uh, the, the Pacific water waters, you know, 60 degrees Fahrenheit or colder. So, you know, I'm looking at. 10 degrees Celsius, something like there. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting my Celsius down, living down, down here in New Zealand. Now, 
you will find them in shallow waters and then up to depths of 1,500 meters or, or nearly 5,000 feet down, which is deep. That's really deep. Talking to Dr. Scheel, and, and what we're gonna, that's what we're going to talk a little bit about here in a minute about why care. He said, since he's lived in Alaska, because that's where he teaches, he's noticed over his career that the octopus, where you used to find them in, in the shallows and in tidal pools, you can't find them anymore. It's too warm. So they're, they're, they're less in number, and the ones they do find are much, much deeper. Well, it's interesting, Chris, too, with you saying that they might be spending more time in deeper water because they usually like to live in dens or layers, which are either under boulders or rock crevices or things like that. And so that's where I would feel like they would enjoy some of the shallows sometimes, but uh, they must be trying to make their habitats a little out deeper. So I wonder, I wonder if their habitat choice or, uh, is, is changing at all. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's like we go back to gray whales a few weeks back too, and we were we were finishing up plastic free July. We know that ecosystem's changing in the Bering Sea. You know, we know the sea ice is is receding, so the ecosystem is changing. So it could be some of their uh, prey items are 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 changing. I I I, I'm, I don't follow deadliest catch. You know, the crabs and stuff, uh, the, the the crabs that they king crab and stuff that they try to go catch there. Uh, I haven't followed it for a few years, but I remember reading one season like they couldn't find any crap. So there's a lot going on there, and and that's going to kind of lead me into a little bit of of why I care about the giant Pacific octopus because our warming oceans are a major concern, right? And so I just said uh, a few weeks ago, so we're recording this in early September in 2023. Uh, it was re- reported, and this is in the New York Times, 101 degrees Fahrenheit in the ocean off Florida. Was it a world record? And it it's interesting to kind of go into this article about why they recorded such a high temperature. And then NASA, just a few days ago, released a article basically saying the ocean has a fever. So they posted that on their website. And the the 101 degree Fahrenheit for our <laughs> the rest of the world that listens to the podcast that's 38.3 degrees Celsius. So so very very hot, bath water hot, which is impacting it's the like ecosystem. hot tub hot. Yeah, that's 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 impacting the ecosystem right where Angie's living. You know, bleaching corals and everything. But looking at that a little bit, it it is a gra- you know. A, a worrisome headline, you know, a little bit uh, like, wow, look at this. And what do we call it? Shock media, whatever. But if you look at how they measured the ocean temperatures, you know, they, they were wondering, was that a malfunction? Was that a real reading? And it was, it was a true reading, but you have to think when you're in shallow water or very, very shallow water, like say over a coral reef or in a puddle of water, it warms up a lot more and a lot Quicker. more quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it can't evaporate enough, right? So you can get some of these temperatures. The article goes into saying that deeper oceans rarely rise above 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 32 degrees Celsius, which is still really it's warm. It's still warm. That's yeah. bathwater warm. Yeah. But that's, you know, around the equator when you go to the tropics and, 
you know, I go to Fiji or, or Tahiti one day, uh, the, the water's that warm, you know, because it's, it's up there near the, uh, the equator, but we have to recognize that, yeah, the ocean does have a fever. Our oceans are warming. So again, that goes into what Dr. Shield was saying, not seeing any giant Pacific octopus around in the shallows around Alaska now because of the warming temperatures. The sea surface temperatures are are at the highest we've ever seen, we've ever measured. So in July of 2023, global sea surface temperatures rose almost a full degree Celsius or 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit above average and for the month of July. And I know we just mentioned it, I think we were in our Polcat episode, the last we spoke, you were talking about uh, July being one of the hottest months ever recorded on record, even looking at sea ice and, and how we look at over the last few hundred thousand years, it's, uh, you know, the people down in Antarctica and pulling up these ice cores, they have said this is the warm, one of the warmest records ever recorded on earth that we, we, we can do, you know, now we can't go back millions and millions of years. We don't have the ice and stuff to do that, but for what we can see the last few hundred thousand years, this is not. And this was actually the fourth consecutive month that sea surface temperatures have broken uh, world record levels. So NASA is going into what are the different factors? You know, what is driving this? What is pushing these high surface temperatures? Well, one of the things I guess we'll be talking about over the next year or two is we have a very strong El Nino right now in the Pacific Ocean. We just got out of La Nina. And I think last year I was talking about how that was affecting weather here in New Zealand and Australia. A lot more rain, definitely uh, different temperatures. Now that that big warm mass of water has shifted from the Western Pacific to the Eastern Pacific off South America, because that's where it is. And I know we've talked about this before whenever we talked about species off the Galapagos. So you have this huge, not boiling, but warm water mass in the Western Pacific that is going to affect weather patterns around the world. Well, and the wildlife that lives there. Yeah, yeah. And it's scary because Australia, this is where we go into drought. So we get drought conditions. The, the Australian wildfires, part of what was driving that was El Nino, where there was not the, um, the rain. In that part, yeah, the rain in that part of Australia. So it got super hot and fires and it was devastating. So right now, the, you know, like I said, the, the ocean has a, has a fever. They're, they're quoting data that in, in now, late August of 2023, Many areas around the world, sea surface temperatures are three degrees a sea higher or almost five and a half degrees Fahrenheit warmer than normal. And you're seeing it in this developing El Nino. Now, this has also led to warming, not just in South America, but sea surface temperatures off Japan and the Northern Pacific from California, Oregon, Washington, they have abnormal sea surface temperatures. And then also in the Arctic Oceans, uh, above, right, the Bering Straits and above Russia, they're abnormally warm. And then the Indian and Southern Oceans, Southern Pacific Oceans, 
there's there's swaths of warming trends that we've not seen. So it's 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 not good. The data isn't good. And it's definitely having impacts on weather patterns around the world and then also our wildlife, right? Absolutely. I yeah. Mean, without a doubt. Yeah. And right now, just in my part of the world, so for our Australia listeners and our New Zealand listeners, there was a headline the other day that Southeast Australia marine heat wave is literally going to be off the scale. That around the Tasman Sea, where which is between New Zealand and, and Australia and around Tasmania, the ocean temperatures are going to be the highest they've ever seen. So I'm thinking of all the sea dragons and those little blue penguins and mm-hmm. how is that going to affect them. Now, for our our listeners around the world, so for the United States, weather patterns in your winter, upcoming winter in 2023, should be wetter than normal in the southern U.S., which you're going to see more rain. That's dry- right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but drier in the north, in the northern part. Uh, it's going to bring more rain to South America, but droughts to, like I said, Australia and Indonesia. Uh, in Europe, they're expecting uh, next, you're going to have a colder winter, but a lot much warmer summer, which you're seeing now. You know, Yeah. yeah the weather patterns in, in Europe have been really, really uh, rough. So, you know, Angie, it's like, it's not good. It's just, it's, it's, it's. I do have a lot of optimism. I do believe things are going to to get better around the world. I just, oh, it's like, it just, I guess it just drives me to do the podcast. But, you know, to the listeners, it's like, what can you do? Because you feel helpless, right? Like you feel oh, helpless. Oh, yes. Yeah. It, it, it's hard when you see policies being either shot down or ignored. It's just, it's, yeah, it's, uh, you can feel helpless. But there is hope in numbers and there is there are ways to vote with your dollar and get the right politicians in there that will actually make substantial changes. Yeah. And, of course, there's genius scientists that actually specialize in this. Chris and I are not climate scientists, mm-hmm. uh, but that are are fighting hard for this. I mean, uh, internationally. Right. And so there's great minds on it. Uh, I just feel like we need more action faster. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just. And, you know, that's what I was saying. What can you do? You can support green legislation. We actually have an election coming up here soon in New Zealand. So I'm I'm carefully looking at that. Oh, we're yeah. warming up here in the U.S. I know. God, yeah. Everybody knows that. Everybody <laughs> <laughs> yeah. around the world knows that. It's even in my headlines. That's why. I, I, yeah. I'm like, so uh, I'm like, just I need the BBC or I, I, I need international news because yeah. uh, it's uh, the yeah. U.S. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, po- other politics aside, I just always support green legislation and whether you're yeah, conservative. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Liberal, conservative, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You should. And you would think they would all be getting on that page regardless of their other political belief system because this is so important and so in your face. And I don't know why everybody just can't agree on it a little bit more yeah. or, get a, or get a little bit more Especially done. in Florida. It was 101 oh, it, degrees it, Fahrenheit well, in your water. A little small sidebar. I'll see new construction going up all the time of these big, beautiful apartment buildings, probably to house students or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, Of course, they cut down the trees because you have mm-hmm. to when you build. And then they build these big, big apartment buildings and there are zero solar panels on them. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, we, we're called the sunshine state. Like if I anybody know. should have 
solar power, everything, it should be us. And just new construction after new construction I see in my down the street from my house in my in my community, which is a pretty progressive community still. But mm-hmm. no, no, no solar panels. I'm just gotta go to California, see that. Yeah, I California know, supports it. Just doesn't it, yeah. make any sense. No, but it, it's it, it it's it gonna be, take. It yeah. should be part of the. It should be part yeah. of the law. Like you want to build something new and yeah. cut some trees down. I get it. We need housing and jobs yeah. and all that, but then put some solar panels on it, for goodness no, sakes. I know, I know. Well, it's definitely, it's going to change. And, and, and the, the the younger generation is energized. Um, even yes. my, my young son the yes. other day was mm-hmm. talking about, Dad, we shouldn't travel. It's bad for the environment and we have to be careful. So we're talking about, we have an electric car. And I was like, buddy, you know, because it, it's hard to find charging stations and, you know, trying to, drive because we drove down to Wellington a few weeks ago and we had to stop like every hour or two just to charge. And, you know, we got this huge debate and he's like, Dad, I was like, well, maybe next time we'll just take our, our other car that has petrol. And he's like, no, we can't. It's bad for the environment. This is my eight year old schooling me. Love that. And I said, I buddy, that. I'm, I'm like, buddy, I know I hear you. I'm doing my part. I do my podcast. I do this. So, you know, there's a lot of hope out there. I think we just need more education, support green legislation, curb our own carbon emissions the best we can, and uh, go from there. So, you know, there is hope. There is a lot of hope. It's just you have to, people need to know what's going on and what's the truth. and, and, And you cannot, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't believe in science, I'm sorry, you shouldn't listen to us. I just... Scientists, I know what we go through. I know how hard we study. We specialize in certain areas. But when almost 95% of climate scientists say this is human made, this is a problem, we need to fix it or this is going to happen. And now it's happening at an accelerated rate. You can't deny it anymore. We have to come together. I don't care what you believe in We outside of green policy. We have to come together. We have to. Reach across the aisle. We have to come to consensus. Yes. Yes, definitely. It was a hot summer here in North America. Mm-hmm. Crazy hot. Still is. Uh, still is high. Our, my heat index today was over 100, yeah. which is high. Yeah. Very sweaty. I sweat yeah. way too much. <laughs> All right. All right. We're getting off our soapbox. But yeah, that's that's what's going on with the with the warming oceans. Got some really... I, 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 I love thinking about the evolution of the octopus but you know i'll get through it the physiology and i know we've touched upon some of it but if you did watch my octopus teacher and i talked to dr shiel about this there was a part where the arm gets ripped off by a shark of Mm -hmm. the octopus and and uh, you think it's going to die but it actually regenerates and so i looked into how does that happen cool yeah you better come back come back and listen (laughs) so we'll be right back Hey there, fellow super moms. This is Angie from All Creatures Podcast. Are you juggling a million things at once like me? Between work and podcast deadlines, after school sports, taking care of the kids, and of course, all of our pets, finding time to cook nutritious lunches and dinners can feel like an impossible mission in my house. But guess what? I've found the ultimate lifesaver, Factor. Picture this, delicious, chef-crafted meals delivered right to your doorstep, ready to heat and eat whenever you need them. 
No more stressing about what to cook or spending hours in the kitchen. With over 35 mouth-watering options each week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, and more, Factor has something for everyone in the family. My husband and I are loving the vegan options, and we are also enjoying their amazing add-ons, from snacks to yummy smoothies. Factor isn't just convenient, it's budget-friendly too. So say goodbye to expensive takeout, because Factor meals are dietitian approved and cost less than dining out. Plus, you can customize your plan to fit your busy schedule and pause or reschedule deliveries whenever you need to. And the best part? Zero prep, zero mess. Just pop a meal in the microwave and boom, lunch or dinner is served. So choose Factor because every super mom like you deserves a break from meal planning without compromising taste and health. And we all need more quality time with the creatures we love. Head to factormeals.com slash creatures50 and use code creatures50 to get 50% off. That's code creatures50 at factormeals.com slash creatures50 to get 50% off. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. All right, welcome back. So, I mean, we just covered evolution with squid. Very similar with the octopus, just some, some little bit differences. I mean, there are animals. That's the kingdom. The phylum are mollusks. So we talked about this second largest phylum in invertebrates. So there's over 85,000 species of mollusks, which is nuts from squids to snails. It's, yeah, it's a lot. I know. I always think of mollusk and I think of like a something with a shell, like a clam yeah. or yeah, an oyster. Yeah. But I was reading somewhere that described it that basically like the, the beak of the octopus that they yeah, mm-hmm. bite their prey with and stuff, that's like their, rem- that's like their shell, the remnant, like the remnant yeah. of their shell. I thought yeah, that was a cool. They're ancient, like, yeah, mm-hmm. five hundred million years. We'll get here in a second. Uh, the class are, are cephalopods or cephalopoda. So this is the cuttlefish and nautilus. I, I we get that's within the year. That We're has cover one to of be them. soon. Yeah, yes. uh, yeah, yes. or the nautilus. Yeah, uh, up to seven hundred species in there, and then in the order, the octopoda, three hundred species of octopus. Oh wow! Now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, tons. I mean, there's octopus all over the place in, in every ocean in the world, every marine habitat. So you find them in Hawaii and coral reefs, down here and off Australia, you know, on our coral reefs. Uh, some go to the cold ocean depths of the giant Pacific octopus. That is a, a deep one. The spoon-armed octopus is found up to depths up to 3,300 feet or 1,000 meters. This one, it doesn't have a, a common name. I couldn't find it. Lives near the hydrothermal vents around 6,600 feet deep or 2,000 meters deep. It's Volcano Octopus, Hydrothermalis. <laughs> nice. That's a great scientific name. Volcano Octopus, Hydrothermalis. Name, yeah. yeah. So they live near the hydrothermal vents. And like the fin deep sea octopus are free swimming, live in the deep, deep waters. And then the well, and, and I and I imagine we'll cover this if we can find data on it at some point. The Dumbo octopus, that one makes its mm-hmm. rounds on social media. Yes, definitely. 
is the deepest known uh, octopus that's up to 7,000 meters or over 22,000 feet. So, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no octopus that live in freshwater. They're all, all uh, saltwater in there. Now, when you take those 300 octopus, break it down, the giant Pacific octopus is part of the family Enterooctopodidae. So there's four genera. The Pacific octopus uh, genus is Enterooctopus. There's four species. So you have the giant Pacific octopus, the southern giant octopus. So that's off Africa. Okay. The southern red octopus. So that's off South America. And then the yellow octopus is the one that surrounds me. It's off uh, New Zealand. So those are your four species in the genus. There's no subspecies of uh, the giant Pacific octopus, but uh, there's that. All right. Invertebrates date back the Cambrian explosion. That's when they started, uh, you know, from little simple unicellular life forms. We had this huge explosion for 25 million years. So anthropods and arachnids and other things emerged. So this goes back to when early mollusks came, came around about 555 million years ago. And I mentioned this in the squid episode that the, their foot, that mollusk's foot, like that's what snails crawl around on. Uh, that's where these tentacles came from because early cephalopods had like five tentacles. Okay. Yeah. Then 250 million years ago, squid and octopus diverge. Earliest evidence we have of any octopus is 155 million years ago. Again, but it's tough because they're soft-bodied, right? Yeah. You have You have the beaks and it's tough with some of these ocean species. We don't have a lot of data on, on that. So giant Pacific octopus, no idea when that emerged. Somewhere probably after the last a mass extinction, 60 million years. And, uh, you know, this current version could be, you know, a few million years old or it could be a few hundred thousand years old like some other species. So we just don't know. We just don't know. So that's evolution in a nutshell. Uh, now jumping into the fun part because I think we got to get to some behavior too. Because So that's many fun facts though. Uh, so yeah. many, their physiology. Oh, yeah. It's, they're aliens. They're yeah. incredible. Yeah, 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 yeah. So live up to three to five years, octopus. Which not, is long for an octopus. For an octopus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. My octopus teacher was like a year old. It was like a, yeah. over a year, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she gave, you know, she she gave birth or gave birth. She protected her eggs and then she died. Uh, so three to five years is is pretty long. That's probably why they do get as big as they do. And it's important to remember the octopus has arms, not tentacles. Ooh, because right. ten- tentacles are in squid octopus mm-hmm. has arms and the octopus like you said has what 280 suckers on, on average I, on I average I per saw arm 270 to 280 okay well uh, a lot mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> so close to when you do the math close to 2000 yeah that's nuts and then where in squid the tentacles only have suckers at the end right so these suckers they're so important aren't they like they're they're the physiology of them is is just fun they're cool they're so fun (laughs) i had a lot i uh, had a good time the past week or so watching uh, a lot of videos uh some were from monterey bay aquarium is a really good website the monterey bay aquarium is a good uh, reference and source lots of fun videos there but 
the suckers are exactly what they sound like, like suction cups. I mean, that's what they were, they're mimicked off of the octopus Mm -hmm. and they're really strong. Mm -hmm. And these individual suckers, so what do we say, like 270, 280 on each individual arm. Arm. Each sucker works independently of the other one. And what I mean by that is the octopus can choose to lay down a sucker, let's say, on your arm, if you're an octopus keeper at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and not lay one down next to it, then lay another one on a table. And then it can choose, if it does want to lift the sucker off of the keeper's arm, and then put it on the table. So they it's not like it's all unison. They're they're independent as far as their movement and their the motor skills. And the suckers also have incredible amount of neuronal receptors for touch, which that makes sense, right? You know, what am I touching? Am I touching my food? Am I touching a rock? Am I touching a, a zookeeper? But also for taste as well. So they're getting a ton of information through these suckers. They're not just to hold on to things or for um, fighting off predators and things like this. They're, it's, I mean, I've heard it described somewhere as like, oh, they have eight individual brains. Mm-hmm. And that's not entirely anatomically or physiologically correct. But what's happening is that the, their arms and the suckers and the motor neurons within each individual sucker can act independently of what is going on in the brain and the mantle. So the brain doesn't, like you and I have to think, I'm going to lift my foot up or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That type of thinking or basically um, uh, neuronal firing is happening within the arm itself more than coming from the central nervous system of, of the brain. So just fascinating and so strong. Oh my gosh, watch, yeah. these keep, watching these keepers trying to get, trying to get them off of them is just, they're like, and they're like if the um, octopus really likes you, and I'll talk a lot about their, what, what I learned about that they have personalities and how intelligent they are, uh, but if they really like you, uh, one of the zookeepers was saying, or aquarium keepers, I should say, uh, was saying that they'll leave you little octopus hickeys if you're lucky all over <laughs> your arm. There, oh, there, and I mean, I, I'm the, like the animal nerd. I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like I haven't lived because I have not worked that intimately with an octopus and I want an octopus hickey. I mean, yeah. a lot of them on my arms. That'd be so cool. <laughs> Because watching, the, I heard that they'll like it'll like squirt and change colors if they like like you and recognize you and just ugh, so cool. But um, yes, yeah, so that's uh, my sucker physiology. Well, they are from another planet. They just they are, and I do. I talked to Shield about that, like the individual brains. But you're right. Like each, uh, they people say they have nine brains. There's the central nervous system, mm-hmm. which surrounds their throat. By the way. It's it's mm. not like in the back mm-hmm. of the mantle as you would think. It's 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 up front, um, and each arm has a group of neurons that's almost it's not a functioning brain, but it allows each arm to 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 work independently. We talked about right. this before. Each so, arm and each sucker, sucker, on each arm, each sucker, <laughs> like down to that level. Crazy. Oh, crazy. oh yeah, they're 
Ah, oh, they're beautiful creatures. Well, just looking at some of the other physiology, uh, the eyes, they do um, have decent eyesight, I would think, you know, for they an, do an have good, yeah. mm-hmm. They do have good eyesight, but a, a recent study suggests that, that they have, they don't see in color. So they're mm-hmm. colorblind. I don't know if that, um, I don't know if that means they see on, in grayscale, but overall mm-hmm. they think that they're colorblind. Which for me is completely insane because they're able to mimic the color and kind of even structure of a rock when they're next to it or the sand if they're over by the sand. So I, but what I don't understand, and maybe this would have been a good question for um, your interview, if they can't see in, first of all, yeah, it, how how can they make their body match something so quickly? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. we we understand the physiology of of it because the giant Pacific octopus has millions of these elastic cells under their skin called mm-hmm. chromatophores, mm-hmm. and these specialized color changing cells contain different color pigments, and so the the octopus uses the vision to then match the colors patterns and then even the like the sh- the texture of some uh, of whatever the background is and it does it by basically stretching the skin and moving these chromatophores and basically squeezing them shut or open to change the color or the amount of pigment that comes to the top but i don't understand how they how how can they do that if they if they're colorblind honestly speechless i do they see in a different spectrum that we can't see? Because I know, well, no, because I only go back to mantis shrimp. Again, if you've not seen that episode, you've got to listen to that one. I think it's episode 200 something. I'll look it up here in a minute. They saw in like 16 vibrant, they had like the best color sight of any known animal. But, but yeah, then I then, don't, you like great. But then they're also... But, like if it's yeah. grayscale site, then and then but even I mean, then, but then how can they orchestrate so quickly? Exactly, exactly. The, the to 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 move the you know to fire the nerves, to move the muscles, to stretch the skin, to to shift the pigment around in the chromatophore. So it, I mean, okay, incredible. Anybody incredible. listening that's a, a fan of octonation. Throw that out there to, and I'll see if I can send this to Warren Carlisle. And let's see if we can find the answer to that and see if, and somebody email us or contact us on social media and said, here's your answer. Let us know because I, I have a feeling we're going to revisit the species. <laughs> not, not this one specifically, but we're going to re- revisit uh, octopus at, at some point in the future because they're too incredible. They're, they're, they're just out of all the species in the world. Yeah, the, yeah. I mean, I just, yeah, that's where I, I, I just really stopped in awe with mm-hmm. camouflage physiology. I was like, yeah, mammals don't do that. So, or, or they, they do it, but that, that stays the same mm-hmm. <laughs> with their fur, their feather. Yeah. yeah, the winter, yeah, they, know, they, plumage yeah. and stuff changes slowly, but, not instantaneously. Correct. correct. This instantaneous, instantaneous camouflage. I was just like, I dropped the mic. I'm out. <laughs> All right. I need to go back to grad school, I think, to understand this. Um, yeah. And yeah. maybe and researchers might not even fully fully understand it, uh, but it is, it is fascinating because I know they, they do have good acute vision. But once mm-hmm. again, 
And so they're seeing, there's, I'm assuming they're seeing, you know, like I said, I don't know if it's exactly grayscale or what, uh, but I mean, and then they, they match their skin to, to the background. But even grayscale, it's like they, they match it, the reds, they match the blues, they match the greens. Right. It's not, it's not like they go in and they're yellow and all of a sudden they're brown. It's, they match it like nearly perfectly in their camouflage. And this, this is experiments too. So, I mean, there might not, yeah, the, the data might not be conclusive. They might still be studying it, but evidence early evidence is suggesting that yeah, that they're they're colorblind. colorblind. So, all right, animal behaviorists. That's that's why it's it's your thing. It's it's amazing. Some other physiology that we, that you know we've mentioned this in octopus. They have three hearts. So you have two hearts that pump blood over the gills because that's where they're getting oxygen, and then you have a third that pumps the rest of the blood to the rest of the body. Uh, their blood is blue, not red. <laughs> yep, just like squid. So yeah, I know blood. we talked about that. Yeah, which is higher in copper. So uh, definitely, that's unique to them. They're move. I mean, pretty much similar to, to other cephalopods. So they have the siphon. That's that tube shape that that propels them around. Right. They they suck in the water, and and that's how they they escape. I forgot to mention their, that in my description, yeah, the siphon that's yeah. it's out of the base of the mantle. So they use that. I mean, they can use that to to, to, to jump away. I'll, I'll talk about defense here in a little bit uh, with a giant red octop- giant Pacific octopus. But that does that helps them get around a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, like other cephalopods, the giant Pacific octopus will move or propel through the water headfirst. And to do this, it basically fills its mantle with water over the gills, which that's how it breathes, right? The water mm-hmm. coming over the gills brings in oxygen-rich water, which then goes in their bloodstream into their three hearts and is pumped through their body. Uh, and then the excess water is squirted out of the siphon, which that helps them with their jet propulsion. Mm-hmm. And if you're a zookeeper that they like, they might squirt water at you so that's i love that <laughs> that's a good one yeah that's a good one all right well i before, before we jump into some behavior and, and and i guess diet but one thing i want to talk about real quick is is regrowing an arm uh, because i did mention that earlier before the break and i it just interests me because of regenerative medicine it's one thing when i teach and i talk about you know genetics and how exciting where we are moving in medicine I know going back to our axolotl episode, that was a, a 300 ago. It was a long time ago. We did that one. And uh, there are species that, that researchers are using about how like they regrow their limbs and, you know, can we harness that knowledge for human medicine? Well, in my octopus teacher on Netflix, and I asked Dr. Sheila about this is, is when this arm's bitten off and, and the octopus is like, hidden away, not eating, looks like she's going to die. But then a few days later, he sees this little bud emerge and octopus can actually regrow their arms. So actually, uh, Octonation, when I Googled this, popped up with a a study, uh, which is really nice to find. And there was a study done about 10 years ago in the Journal of Experimental Marine Biology and Ecology. So it was Fasada and, and others. This was done in Italy. And they were looking at octopus arm regeneration. 
So, you know, anytime there's a wound or an injury, our bodies react. So if we get a cut, there's a bunch of things that happen to to clot, plug the wound, and regrow the skin. So we we do this ourselves day in, day out. But to lose an entire arm, that is a, a not just fix and heal the wound site, but to signal and regenerate an entire new arm. If we think about our own arms, now octopus don't have bones, but just the soft tissue, the blood vessels, the nervous system, all of that has to be regrown. The suckers, all of the individual suckers need to be regrown. Yeah. And the neuronal network. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot, a lot of research that's been going on to study this and look at the molecular pathways. How do they do it? How do they regenerate? Because again, this is going to have impacts on, on medicine in the next couple decades. So when we're doing this study, when an octopus, uh, uh, lost its arm. It took about three days. There was a little knob. Then by 11 days, there was a little protrusion, like a little tiny, tiny arm. After 17 days, there was a little hook. So that was like the end of it. After 55 days, they could spot like what looked like a tiny arm. And then by 130 days, they had a completely new arm. That's four That's months. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. crazy. I love it. So if you go look at the study and they have pictures of it and, and, and regrowing and they're looking at specifically what uh, signals this. So this is really nerdy science, but acetylcholinesterase, so A-C-H-E. So that's something that that's, it's one of the things they were looking at that it's heavily involved in cell proliferation, differentiation. Because again, you're growing soft tissue suckers outer skin the chromatophores you're talking about the the skin muscles the muscle the blood vessels the nerve tissue all of that and they they're saying this is actually one of the chemical signals that helps do that so that's the really nerdy part but i just thought it was interesting that they studied it and within four months that octopus had a brand new arm that functioned just perfect incredible so, Out of this world. I know. Mm-hmm. They are. They are. They really are. They really are. Now, just looking at, before we jump to behavior, giant Pacific octopuses are general foragers. So they primarily eat clams, uh, fish, squid, crabs. That's primarily. Seabirds sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Little small humans Lobsters. that don't listen to their mothers going mm-hmm. to bed. No. Mm-hmm. Um but no, in actuality, uh, just to get ahead of that real quick, there's been no reports of a giant Pacific octopus actually killing a human. Bitten, which I'll talk about here in a minute, or hunting, uh, to lead you into behavior. But yeah, now the one thing that the behavior that, because we've seen this in other species, and I can't name off the top of my head, but they have these middens out in front of, like you said, they, they, they like these dens, these places where they like to hide. And then they yes. have like... All this death and destruction mm-hmm. in front. Yeah. Yeah. So giant Pacific octopuses, they'll, they'll hunt their prey. And I'm going to talk about how they do that because they have different hunting styles. But when they do collect their prey, uh, they'll usually take it back there to their den to consume it. And then the remains, which are often shells, right, are, are left at the entrance of their den. And so they'll have these like 
skeletal or shell remains, and they're mm-hmm. called octopus middens, and that's M-I-D-D-E-N-S. Mm-hmm. And the middens are actually really helpful for octopus researchers because it can help them learn more about what the diet is and what they're eating. And so that's why researchers speculate that giant Pacific octopuses love to eat fish, crabs, clams, and squid, because those are the bones or the shells that they leave outside of their den Mm -hmm. as prizes. So just really interesting behavior. It is. It is. Now their hunting behavior, I know you're itching to talk about that. They're visual hunters, so I'm still curious about being able to see in color. But yeah, these are they're they're very successful hunters. Oh, yeah, I mean they're super stealthy, right? So they have good division and they have the camouflage so they can sneak up on something pretty well or they can lay in lay in dormant, lay in wait and do an ambush style, but they're definitely visual hunters and they'll stalk, they'll chase, you name it. But there's definitely different ways that they'll consume their meals or go after their meals. But there's definitely a couple cool ways that they, um, uh, after they get their meal, how they consume it. So they have different hunting styles to get the food, of course, and then they have different eating styles. And so one method is pretty simple. They'll just pull out the protective shell if it's uh, some type of clam or mollusk, and then they'll just, they'll get the meat inside. And mind you, they have that nice beak for tearing as well. And the beak is strong and super sharp. So they can sometimes use it to help crack open different crustaceans if need be. And then they also, their bite will release a little bit of venom Mm -hmm. that can subdue the prey if the prey is crazy wild and, um, and not relaxed. And this is where the beak can come in handy because they will use it to basically crush their prey. And especially in the mid, like they go for like the middle of the body, pretty pretty damaging. I, I just keep it, I pic, I picture like a parrot beak, right? I, oh yeah. And then the third way that they'll get food from their prey is is my favorite because this method involves the giant Pacific octopus drilling a hole into the prey shell, and then the octopus will release some of the venom or the toxic mm-hmm. saliva. And this secretion will soften the shell so that they can get, drill through it. And then they'll use, a, uh, the octopus will use like a tongue-like appendage called a radula to scrape away any material around the hole to make a bigger hole. And basically then use more toxins to paralyze the prey. And then that basically dissolve, makes it turn into mush. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then... Uh, and then basically the octopus can pull the shell apart and get into the prey and off they go. So they're pretty amazing with all these different styles of getting to their food, whether they smash it, they drill it, they <laughs> melt it with their t- yes. <laughs> with their toxic yeah, saliva venom. or their yeah. venom. Uh, it's just just so just so incredible. They are, they are. And 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 I went down and and because I was like, Oh, they're venomous, and and you come to find out all octopus are venomous. And the thing is, for us, most are very low levels, so they they don't really impact us. Um, there was a report of a woman that was bit by a giant Pacific octopus, and she just had some swelling around the bites, and that was it. It's, it wasn't deadly, um, and very rarely do they they go after or attack people. I mean, they are kind of you know they they would be scary in the depths, 
because they're so strong and big. Now, the blue ring octopus, just as a reminder, they have symbiotic bacteria in their mm. saliva that produces the tetradotoxin TTX. That's what's a neurotoxin to us that if we're bit, it will stop our muscles from contracting and we just don't breathe, you know, and it just, it could be deadly. They, yeah, blue, blue ring octopus can kill up one bite, can kill up to 26 adult humans within minutes. So Yowzers. They, yeah. it's, it's really rare. It's really rare to bite humans and stuff, but you just don't mess with them. Now, just real quick, if I lead you into behavior, other behaviors, because we covered a few, it's, it's amazing. Uh, saying in their defense, not many predators with the giant Pacific octopus, once they're big adult, humans are their main ones. They are harvested for eating. Uh, but if they if they are have some something trying to go after them, they'll actually fight. They'll fight them off with their arms. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can uh, propel away and, and squirt ink like any other octopus if they, if they have to. So nothing different there. Other behaviors, I mean, this could be its own podcast on its own, right? <laughs> you know, I, I guess, you know, you'd probably, be, I'm sure Dr. Shield would love to come back on and talk about behaviors with you. And, um, but it, they're just, they're just, they're smart. They, they're escape artists. They, all of it. Yeah. Everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so uh, in general, in the wild, the giant Pacific octopus is a solitary species. So they're going to hang out in their den for weeks at a time. They'll go capture the food, bring their food back to the den, do some crazy things to get to the food, and then leave the skeletons or the shells on the outside as like in, in their middens. They're only going to be found together for breeding, and I'll talk about that when I get to re- uh, reproduction. But they, as Chris already mentioned, they're a, they're a timid species. They're they're rarely aggressive towards humans. I watched a beautiful uh, video that was put on the BBC channel, but it was a, a, of a diver and she was just diving and they, they were looking, they were hoping to see a um, giant Pacific octopus, but not only did they see it, but it interacted with her and her camera uh, for an hour and just mm-hmm. on her body, on her camera, just uh, very peaceful, just wanting to be inquisitive. So it was a cool video to watch because you could actually see the suckers on the camera. So it, kind of, it gave a really like close-up view of how cool they are. And when it comes to communication of the giant Pacific octopus, we talked a little bit about their taste, or their taste and their touch receptors in their arms. But researchers, they, you know, they don't really necessarily pinpoint exactly how they communicate with one another. Besides, if, if it is going to be an aggressive display, because maybe two males come across each other. Uh, and in the wild, they they might you know they will fight then sometimes. But in general, the the change, the camouflage, and the changing of colors is probably a really predominant way that they communicate with each other. Whether it's territorial or camouflage, of course, to scare off or flee uh, from a predator. And then, of course, during breeding season, there might be some some type of color change or colors between male and females during breeding. But as far as like vocalizations or things like that, nothing's been reported. What I do want to talk about is what has been reported time and time again. And granted, it is anecdotal because it's hard to capture this, I think, in behavioral studies. Well, I take that back. I don't 
I don't know if the study has been, I couldn't find the study that had, has been done on, uh, on octopus, but it's definitely been done on a lot of mammals, but that's a personality, right? An individuality because a lot of aquarium keepers or researchers or people that work with octopus. And we saw this in the movie, the octopus teacher is no two octopuses are the same. Uh, scientists and aquarists that work with them document individual preferences. Um, some are shy, some like to hide. Some of them hunt more often. Some of them are way more inquisitive with the um, the, the staff that works with them. Um, some of them are, I love this one. Some of them are extra touchy feely. Mm-hmm. So they're like, I, um, my friend has a dog and that's so funny. He, he describes her as, her name is Lily. And he's like, Lily's motto is... N- never close enough she's Hmm. just like beagle mix and she'll just like hang out like in your face like that's not close enough so anyways it just when i read this about a touchy-feely octopus it's like just there's an octopus that probably can never be close enough to (laughs) to to the person working with them so the personalities just countless documentation of uh, them having personalities which does not surprise me every animal bird reptile uh, mammal that I worked with at the zoo, I would definitely had a personality um, mm-hmm, from snakes mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. barn owls to uh, armadillos. But yeah, and then even uh, in human care, they've noticed that uh, they will even make octopus gardens. So we talked about the midden, but sometimes besides bones, they'll actually collect things that they like, like a shiny shell or a jar that they want to bring into their den. So I thought that was really fascinating. <laughs> Uh, that they they uh, they they have their middens, but then they also will sometimes make it more of an octopus garden. And as we've mentioned throughout the podcast, uh, and hopefully our listeners are still with us because this is like the best part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is how intelligent octopus in general are, but the giant Pacific is just considered to be extremely intelligent. They have a much larger than average body to brain size, where they have not only, like I mentioned, a desire to interact with humans, uh, but for to complete puzzles, to to, uh, basically, they can be very destructive. Uh, They've been known to open tank valves and disassemble equipment. They can wreak havoc in labs and stuff like that. Uh, They can wreak havoc behind the scenes in their exhibit if they choose to. And they will respond to humans in different ways by changing their texture and color or flashing um, different colors or turning a certain color if they like you and a certain one if they don't like you. So once again, more of that temperament or personality. Um, Some are more playful and some are more destructive. Some are escape artists. There's, uh, I mean, there's always stories of not necessarily the giant Pacific octopus, but octopus in general. Um, breaking out of their enclosure, going over a couple tanks, eating some fish, and then basically waiting until the morning when they know that the staff is going to be in there and then going back into their enclosure. So mm-hmm. nobody knows. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just. They're the best. It's just, they can open childproof bottles. I can barely do that. Right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just incredible. Um, I mean, and, and a lot of this is because of the dexterity with their arms as well, too. But solving puzzles and doing some of this problem solving of like, okay, well, I can leave right now because nobody's in here and I won't get in trouble. 
And then I make sh- I need to make sure and be back in my enclosure before somebody gets here. I mean, it's just incredible. And octopus do uh, have displayed using tools before. So mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of documentation of them using coconut shells or jars or other things for a home. Uh, and in fact, the thing is, it's not even very well studied. So as far as how complex their intelligence is, I mean, we don't even know. We're at the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's a lot of documentation of them having spatial learning, navigation abilities. It's also our typical intelligence test of like, I'm going to put the mirror in front of the elephant and see if it recognizes itself. Mm -hmm. And then I'll Mm -hmm. classify it as super smart. I mean, things like that aren't going to necessarily work with an octopus. Uh, and so it's some of it, I, it's like the way that we, we think we're smart. So you have to be smart like us, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of literature out there suggesting, well, we just might know, not know how to test a lot of these creatures. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. You just wonder, like, especially, yeah, like designing the experiments with them compared to what some typical stuff you've done with behavior right so right like Roy and like there's some debate out there like um do these octopus are have they been observed playing and they're like well it depends on how you define playing and we define playing like this and yeah yeah what's how's an octopus play and and, right right so um but it makes sense that they have such high intelligence um from an evolutionary point of view because in order for them to be successful for such a long time and be you know and to be able to locate prey and to hide from predators um so successfully uh they definitely had to develop a lot of these skill sets oh it's just i think yeah you just need an octopus behaviorist <laughs> i mean dr shield did a good job too and i if, if, if i think the interview uh, i talk a lot about some of the conservation and studying them and and what he's noticing and what he finds so fascinating about them but to get well, one of I these just, behaviors. I know. Yeah. I, I just was love watching the Aquarius, the keeper interactions with the giant Pacific octopus at, at the Monterey Bay Aquarium mm-hmm. because it just, it like, it, it gave me goosebumps and it made my, my heart speed up as because the way that the keeper was interacting with the octopus is how I've interacted with mammals before yeah. and birds and reptiles. And here's an introvert just loving on, loving on their keeper and being yeah. excited that they're there and knowing who they are. And that's just yeah. so cool. Yeah, they are. They're amazing. They're amazing. Now, one of the things that's it's like I should I should I should do the dramatic music is when they reproduce and and like in my octopus teacher and Big Beast has the giant Pacific octopus, uh the gray whale episode. You know, it's those producers that we interviewed earlier in the year is amazing uh documentary on Apple TV Plus. Uh, the giant octopus reproduction because you would hope they could reproduce quickly because they produce so many eggs, but not many make it to adulthood, right? Like, what's the story? What's the yeah, story? Yeah. Well, they, their breeding is a little bit, it's a, it's a cool physiological story and it's a really amazing behavioral story. Octopus moms are incredible. And I'll talk about that in a second. But yes, Chris, it's hard. The, the the odds are against them to to grow up into adulthood and to be able to reproduce. But the other sad thing, and I guess in my opinion, is that after they breed, they do die. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'll, I'll touch on that here in a second. But what we do know about giant Pacific octopuses is they are, or octopi, I should say, mm-hmm. is that they are polygonous. 
And so a male might breed with several females um, once he reach, reaches the age of maturity, and that's anywhere from like three to five or two to five, uh, just depends. But females will only mate once in their lifetime and produce offspring and then their life cycle's over. So they pass away after that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is not necessarily a breeding season. They're, they have such a wide range, right? So we just know that uh, basically they can create clutches year round. And when a female does decide that it's time for her to breed because she's mature and she's got the right hormones, uh, she'll, she will choose a male and she usually picks one much larger than she is. And once she selects a male, they will travel to her den in the deep water. So uh, researchers believe that most breeding occurs in deep water. And the breeding is pretty cool because once again, as from a mammal physiologist, which you and I are, it's a little bit different with these invertebrates. And so uh, what happens is the male sperm are all bundled up in this like spindled shape spermatophoric sac. And so the male giant octopus actually does have a specialized tentacle. It's called a heterocytalized arm. And this specialized tentacle will transfer the spermatophoric sac. And so with the specialized tentacle, uh, the male giant Pacific octopus will transfer two spermatophore sacs, and they're about one meter in length each. So that's big. Mm-hmm. And he puts them into the oviduct of the female, which is located in her mantle or in her head. And so the female giant Pacific octopus will store these spermatophores until her physiology, her body decides it's time for the eggs to be fertilized and for her to lay them. And interestingly enough, at uh, the Seattle Aquarium, uh, one female was held onto spermatophores uh, for up to seven months before she laid, mm-hmm. laid the fertilized eggs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's definitely a lot of you know, flexibility with that and still probably a lot that researchers don't know. When the male and female are mating and he's passing along these spermatophore sacs to her and to her overduct, it can take about two to three hours. So, uh, okay. but then the male swims away and he might, once again, might try to breed um, more females after that. When the female is ready to lay the fertilized eggs, uh, it can be anywhere from, I saw numbers of 18,000 to 74,000 eggs, up to 100,000 eggs, on average 50,000 eggs, okay? Mm. And she lays, she goes into, into her den and... She hangs these fertilized eggs from the roof of her den and in strands. And so each strand will have mm-hmm. about 250 eggs. And the giant Pacific octopus is a very, very good mom. The mother octopus basically will stay in her den for up to six months as these eggs are developing into the larva. And she's such a good mom. She will fan the eggs with her arms and her body and she'll shoot water over them to make sure they're getting exercise and to make sure that the eggs are getting oxygen and they're aerated and that they're also clean. And for this time, which can be up to six months, uh, the female will not leave the den. She's just cleaning her eggs and keeping them aerated. She doesn't leave and she doesn't eat. And so once the eggs hatch, 
the female giant octopus, her job is done. She doesn't have any like post-parental hatching care uh, of the larva. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, the female will then die. And basically, researchers think she dies of starvation because she's spent all this time not eating and uh, she's fulfilled her life cycle. So really, really fascinating. She's um, the ultimate mom. Like, she is. <laughs> he the gives her life sac- for you. I mean, I sacrificed some like, you know, (laughs) uh, a few things with my body uh, with these children. And I won't mention all of them on air, Uh, but uh, I definitely am still here to talk about it. And I'm, you know, so, yeah, so very, very good mom. And interestingly enough, the males, they'll breed more than one females. They'll breed as many females as they can find or that accept them. But they do die within like three months after partaking in breeding events. Mm -hmm. So they too... Mm -hmm don't Life live for multiple over, yeah. yeah breeding cycles and then just really quick we gotta give a shout out to, to baby octopus and so mm-hmm. when they hatch the larvae from the egg are really small when they hatch they're only about the size of a grain of rice so nine and a half to ten millimeters in length so they're small uh they have limited swimming ability and so when the larvae hatch they have limits limited swimming ability and then they head up to the surface they hang out like a plankton uh, for about one to three months, and they're just drifting along, going wherever. And unfortunately, a lot of them are killed at this point in time, a food source for um, uh, the food chain. And then if they do survive the living at the surface stage, and that's called the planktonic stage, uh, after that, they become a juvenile, and they'll head down deeper. And this is where they really start to grow. So researchers um, estimate that within the first year, uh, they probably only grow to be about two pounds, but then by age two, that's they're up to 20 pounds, potentially could mate, but then a lot of them don't and they'll wait till they're in year three, year four, year five to mate when they're even bigger. Bigger. So, but that's if they make it. And I didn't find statistics on how many make it from the larval stage to the adult stage, but it's very, very, very small. It's not a lot. It's not, no. you know, that's where a lot of them get preyed, you know, preyed upon. And when they're adults, not so much, but. When they're little, yeah, I mean, any fish and, and, and other species will just gobble them right up. The, the good news with conservation in the, in the giant Pacific octopus is, the, is their least concern. But again, talking you know to Dr. Scheel in the interview that's going to be released after this, uh, he is noticing less of them in Alaska, and we know the oceans are changing. So it, it, it's something we got to keep an eye on. Uh, to see how these species adapt and survive uh, all these changes that are happening so quickly. Plenty of organizations out there. Who did you want to cover today? I have to give a big shout out to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. I uh, spent a lot of time watching their videos and I've been there before. They do they do incredible research, a lot of conservation. They are out there educating the public about several marine species, including the uh, giant Pacific octopus. Uh, and they do a great job uh, both in the aquarium and then out in the water with their conservation and uh, education. So check out their website at www.montereybayaquarium.org. And you can watch these cool videos that I watched about their giant octopus and then tons of other species as well. Well, thank you for bringing it today, Angie. I know we're both still recovering and it's probably reflecting our voices, but how easy with this oh, creature. Yeah, oh, know. my word. We had to record. We uh, we love talking about these species and, and you know, just wonderful interviews. We, we've got more interviews coming. 
Uh, we, we're getting pitched all the time. And, you know, please let us know what, what species you want to cover or uh, what interviews you'd love to hear from from us. And we'll track these people down. So you can go to allcreaturespod.com. Uh, you can find our email there or just contact us on Facebook, the All Creatures uh, Facebook group, or also on Instagram. You can also message us there. And as always, we appreciate if you subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And when you uh, review us, you can also request a species that way as well. Yeah, or Spotify too. Please please uh, start, if you're listening to us on Spotify, if, if you don't mind clicking a five-star review too, that, that makes a big difference. But thank you so much for caring and listening to these these species. Love the emails we're getting. Thank you so much. Everybody is is a conservation hero. It starts local, but you can make global impacts too. So, so thank you for listening and stay tuned. Uh, we've got a great slate coming at you. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Are you looking for a podcast your whole family can enjoy together? Uh-huh. Check out Culture Kids Podcast. Our adventures will ignite your curiosity for culture, traditions, languages, geography, and even pop culture with interviews from guests all over the world. Through each episode, we aim to help children become empathetic, creative leaders in their communities and help them see the beauty in our differences. And that's Culture Kids Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.